0: Welcome to the Center for American Progress on this fine Friday morning. This week, the Secretary of Defense warned that we cannot kill or capture our way to victory. When the, what the Pentagon calls kinetic operations should be subordinate to measures to promote economic pro- programs to spur development and efforts to address the grievances, the grievances that often lie at the heart of insurgencies. This week. The Center for U.S. Global Engagement published a public opinion poll, a survey of U.S. military personnel that reported 84 percent of military officers say strengthening diplomatic and development efforts to be equal to or greater than strengthening military efforts when it comes to improving America's ability to address national security needs. Eighty-two percent in that same survey said that different tools and strategies and the current challenges and needs are different from what worked during the Cold War. And 88% of all officers surveyed agreed that a strong military alone is not enough to protect America and that we also need to improve diplomatic relations and do more to promote stability in the world by improving health, education, economic opportunities in other countries. The tools referenced by the Secretary of Defense and requested by Amer- American military officers are what my colleague Gail Smith and her team refer to as sustainable security. Sustainable security is a straight-talking strategy that recognizes American strength is defined not only by the hard work of U.S. military personnel, but also by the lives we save and the opportunities we create for the people of other nations. Today. Our adversaries are often conditions, poverty, infectious disease, political instability, corruption and global warming, which generate the biggest threats. By addressing them in purposeful ways, we solve problems and avoid crisis. The Sustainable Security Program will publish six reports that highlight these challenges. The reports put forth a series of solutions. By addressing the global human security deficit, the United States can improve its own national security and help reintroduce itself to the world. The Director of the Sustainable Security Program at the Center is Dr. Ruben Brigetti, Annapolis graduate, former naval officer, and prior official at the Agency for International Development. Ruben will present his paper, Humanity as a Weapon of War, at this morning's forum. The paper is part of the Center's Sustainable Security Initiative and complements the previous and future reports to be issued in this area. To moderate this morning's session, I would recognize and invite to the rostrum or to the table Dr. Stuart Patrick, the Senior Fellow and Director, Program on International Institutions and Global Governance of the Council on Foreign Relations.
1: Thank you very much, uh, and thank you all for coming to this uh, gathering. Uh, It's a great honor to be asked to chair this event uh, on Ruben Brigadier's thoughtful new paper, Humanity as a Weapon of War, Sustainable Security, and the Role of the U.S. Military. I'm pleased also to be joined by two other good friends and frequent collaborators, uh, Elizabeth Kvitashvili of the United States Agency for International Development and Dr. Jim Shear of National Defense University. A few ground rules. Uh, First, uh, since this uh, event is on the record, uh, remember that Miranda rights apply. Uh, Second, uh, please turn off all your cell phones or pagers uh, so they don't interfere with with the wisdom that's going to be imparted to you. Uh, And then uh, third, uh, some ground rules. Uh, I'll start with a a few brief framing remarks, then we'll turn things over to Ruben, and then uh, consecutively we'll hear from uh, Jim Shear, uh, myself, and Elizabeth Kvitashvili, Uh, at least notionally representing uh, the defense, diplomacy, and development uh, uh, sides of the uh, 3D triangle uh, that this event is uh, really focusing on. Uh, The central question posed by uh, Rubin's paper, what should be the appropriate role of the U.S. military in delivering humanitarian and development assistance, could not be timelier. Uh, We've seen a number of very striking trends over the past uh, several years in this regard. Uh, particularly the growing share of U.S. foreign assistance that's provided uh, directly by the Pentagon uh, and by its regional combatant commands. Uh, We've seen an expansion, for instance, in DOD's share of official development assistance from 5.6% in 2002 to 5.5 billion, uh, uh, excuse me, 5 to 22%, excuse me, from 5.6% to 22% in 2005, a a figure that is probably uh, reasonably close to what it is now. And that's about $5.5 billion. And the uh, other uh, trends that we've seen is an expansion or invention of SERP funds, uh, where the U.S. military can, uh, commanders in the field can actually use uh, uh, DOD funds, very flexible DOD funds, to advance humanitarian governance development and other projects in the field. We've also seen the inv- uh, invention of provincial reconstruction teams as a way to try to bring some coherence to these efforts. We've also seen an expansion of DOD's authorities to use its own resources to provide security assistance uh, rather than uh, directly from the State Department, for instance, in uh, 1206 – so-called 1206 funds that permit the training and equipping of counterterrorism and stability forces in partner countries. Uh, We've seen – finally, we've seen the trend toward using DOD's combatant commands, including Southcom in particular. Uh, and AFRICOM as new platforms for attempting to coordinate U.S. government-wide policies in particular regions or in the words of Admiral Stavridis of Southcom to have um, these these combatant commands be, if you will, a Velcro cube that other U.S. government agencies can stick onto. These recent trends deserves careful scrutiny because they have potential implications for the overall coherence of U.S. foreign policy. The leadership of the State Department in uh, leading the U.S. government's engagement abroad and the pursuit of development objectives uh, in partner countries. Um, on Tuesday evening, uh, I also had the opportunity to hear Secretary Gates uh, deliver some provocative thoughts on this very subject, um, and uh, he warned, as has been reported, of uh, he he noted that many people sub, uh, perceive a creeping militarization of U.S. Of, of some aspects of American foreign policy, and he said this is not an entirely unreasonable sentiment. What's needed, he said, is not only a bigger budget for civilian agencies, but a more clear delineation of, quote, the authorities, roles, and missions of the U.S. military versus civilian efforts and how do they fit together, or in some cases, don't fit together. I can think a few people better positioned to help provide some light on this, uh, shed some light on this topic than uh, Dr. Ruben Brigadier who uh, just returned, incidentally, from the Horn of Africa where he was chairing a conference at the Combined Joint Task Force, Horn of Africa, on uh, the cooperation between civilian and military actors in uh, in in that region. So Ruben, we'll look forward to hearing your comments, and we'll look forward to com- uh, providing our own reflections. Thank you.
2: Uh, Stewart, thank you very much for the introduction, and Rudy, also thank you very much for your kind comments, and I'd also like to thank the Hewlett Foundation for their support for the Sustainable Security Program, and thank you all very much for coming this morning. Some seven years on now, it has become something of a cliché to suggest that the attacks of September 11 changed everything in U.S. foreign and defense policy. Uh, we could talk at length for how it has changed the, w- the ways in which we view our threats, in some senses, how it's changed the way in which we've organized government and indeed our relations with other sovereign nations and non-state actors. But perhaps one of the most profound changes that we have seen since September 11th, and in particular since uh, the invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq, is the extent to which our security establishment views development as an instrument of national power. One of the most dramatic changes in this regard has been doctrinally how the Defense Department is viewing what it calls non-kinetic operations or non-kinetic missions as a means of advancing U.S. security objectives. The U.S. Special Operations Command, which is the executive agent for the prosecution of the war on terror in the Defense Department, broadly conceives of fighting the war uh, on terror on two lines of approach, a direct line of approach and an indirect line of approach. The direct line is the so-called conventional killer capture mission, going after uh, terrorists wherever they may be when they can be identified, and, and killing them or capturing them. The indirect approach includes things like deterring uh, support for violence, extremist organizations, underlying the, the uh, addressing the very root causes for extremism, etc. Now, those sorts of things which are captured in the indirect approach or the so-called non-kinetic lines are things that, in one way or another, at least in terms of the actual operations that our civilian agencies have been doing for many years, particularly U.S. Agency for International Development, but also to other extents the State Department and other organizations. So it is also not, so that is not new, nor is it new for the military to be involved in addressing basic human needs. They have been involved in providing humanitarian, emergency humanitarian assistance for decades. One can only need only think of, for example, Uh, U.S. responses, U.S. military responses to the tsunamis in late 2004-2005, the Pakistan earthquake in 2005, Operation Sea Angel in Bangladesh in 1991, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What is new is the doctrinal change that is happening in the defense establishment with regard to how one sees addressing basic human needs, not simply as a morally important thing to do, not simply as a long-term commitment, but indeed as a vital vector of advancing U.S. national security. And one way in which one can think about this is the use of humanitarian assistance or humanity indeed as a weapon of war. So for just a couple of minutes, I'll talk a little bit about how that doctrine is changing, both in terms of actual substance and sort of the character of it, what that means in terms of new operations, and what all of that means both in terms of how we ought to be thinking about U.S. foreign policy, how we ought to be thinking about U.S. development policy, the role of the military in this regard, and then a couple of very concrete uh, policy proposals um, that we think flow from that, ent- that entire enterprise. For those who may have been familiar, for example, with the, uh, the, the Balkan Wars in the, uh, in the early to mid-1990s and the extent to which the debates that surrounding them, I know uh, Dr. Shear is intimately involved in those about whether or not the U.S. military should be uh, engaged in these sorts of activities and what the line was between the hard military mission and all the other sorts of things, one could be forgiven for being completely surprised by the profound sea change that is happening in the thinking of U.S. defense establishment. And there are any number of documents which suggest this, starting from the Department of Defense Directive 3000.05, which for the first time places stability operations to include things like Helping to restore local economies, helping to restore um, basic rule of law, essential human services in the aftermath of warfare, putting all these sorts of activities as a core mission of the Department of Defense alongside combat operations. If you'd asked anybody 10 years ago or 15 years ago if such a document would ever be uh, promulgated by the Defense Department, they would surely think you were you're you kidding. But indeed, that provides one of the one of the most profound examples of the shift that is happening in uh, in U.S. defense thinking along these lines. But you can also go away from the Pentagon and see what is happening doctrinally, away from Washington, whether one looks at, for example, the new theater security cooperation strategy of the U.S. European Command, dubbed active security, which ex- explicitly argues for the importance of focusing on basic human needs as a means of achieving security objectives in the, in the European theater. obviously. Uh, the creation of AFRICOM and the U.S. Africa Command, and uh, as we will, I I anticipate we will see in the next couple of months AFRICOM rolling out their own theater security cooperation strategy which again will have uh, a variety of non-kinetic missions attached to it to advance U.S. security objectives on the continent of Africa. Uh, The U.S. Navy has articulated a new naval operating concept which emphasizes the importance of humanitarian assistance. Uh, to advance uh, maritime operations and advance U.S. maritime interests around the world, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, All of these things suggest that the U.S. military recognizes that the use of conventional military force is of limited utility in advancing U.S. national security objectives. And indeed, there have to be other ways of thinking about how we advance these objectives. So when we see these fundamental changes in thinking, we've also seen a variety of very substantial changes in organization in the Department of Defense. Starting with perhaps um, uh, the most uh, interesting, the creation of the U.S. Africa Command, which will be the first U.S. uh, combatant command created with an explicitly non-combat mission. Now, as AFRICOM has, um, has engaged itself in this first year of initial uh, initial standing up in, as it moves towards its fully operational and capable date of October 1st of this year, we have seen it undergo a bit of a learning process as, as well in terms of how it articulates the role of the Department of Defense and AFRICOM in particular in the development sphere, cha- moving from uh, AFRICOM having an explicit mission of helping to advance development in partnership with USAID, to focusing potentially much more on military-to-military contacts and operating in a great supporting role to other development activities on the continent. As interesting as the creation of AFRICOM is, there have been other two, two other really quite important organizational developments as well. The first is the creation of the Combined Joint Task Force Horn of Africa in 2002, where Stuart mentioned I, um, I just came from chairing a, a, a meeting in Nairobi yesterday. Uh, on how they operate with civilian agencies in the Horn. CJTFOA was created in 2002 with an explicit sort of conventional killer capture mission, uh, being prepared to killer capture uh, terrorists that were fleeing the wars in Afghanistan. As that entity has continued to exist in the Horn of Africa, they have moved to a much more what they would call non-kinetic mission in 12 countries in Eastern Africa, provide doing a, a wide variety of uh, uh, humanitarian projects from well digging to vaccinating animals to providing um, helping to support basic health services for citizens in, in the Horn, all of which designed to improve stability in the region and therefore co- uh, uh, counter violent extremist ideologies. As visible as the changes of AFRICOM and CJTFO have been, I would argue that perhaps the most important organizational change to watch is the U.S. Southern Command. U.S. Southern Command, as you well know, is responsible for U.S. military operations in Latin America and the Caribbean, and Admiral Stravitas, arguably one of the brightest uh, officers on duty in the U.S. military today, has made the calculation that the likelihood of, of the United States fighting a conventional war in the Americas is relatively small, and that leads you to two logical conclusions. Either SOUTHCOM can go away, since the mission of fighting a war is uh, is essentially um, uh, small, likely to small, or you can find something else for SOUTHCOM to do. And Southcom has made the decision to focus on helping to improve prosperity in the Americas as a means of advancing U.S. national security interests. The reason I would submit to you that Southcom is a much more important model to watch than Africom is that Southcom actually exists. They have telephones, they have offices, uh, computers, uh, full staff, and perhaps, and without sort of, uh, and to be uh, really quite serious about it, they have long-standing relationships across the Americas with every country in the region and a track record of doing humanitarian assistance, particularly in the wake of natural disasters, uh, earthquakes, hurricanes, and the like. All of these changes, um, the changes in doctrine, changes in organization, the funding changes uh, that Stuart mentioned, and others, have happened, I would submit to you, in a relatively organic fashion. That is to say, many of the initiatives, whether it is the, uh, the movement of Southcom. Or the gradual change in, um, at, at, at CJTFOA have happened not necessarily because a, of a very directed push from a central, central authority here in Washington, the creation of DOD 3000.05 notwithstanding. They are occurring largely because the notion of uh, the importance of non kinetic operations is filtering throughout the defense establishment and causing local commanders to ask themselves how can we better advance? U.S. security interests, not simply in hot combat operations like Iraq and Afghanistan, but how can we do what the military calls phase zero or shaping operations so that we can help prevent combat for, or help prevent conflict from actually emerging in the first place. And that is a sort of uh, thinking that is leading to this sort of really quite profound changes on the ground. All of which, though, suggests that precisely because this is happening in a relatively organic fashion, it's happening, I would submit to you, in a way that, uh, that is moving much faster than the ability of our discourse and our debate here in Washington to follow it, which is to say that the movement is happening faster than we've than we've actually been able to, to talk about it and think it through here in Washington, and that leads to the need for some really quite important analysis of what this all means for our foreign d- and development policy and how we ought to be going forward. I would submit to you that on the one hand, while it is it seems almost intuitively obvious that the there are limits to what our kinetic, conventional military capabilities can do in terms of making America safe. We don't yet have a coherent model for how one links the military's involvement in development with the advancement of very specific strategic objectives. Let me give you a couple of examples. As Stuart mentioned, I spent last year as a Special Assistant at the U.S. Agency for International Development in the Bureau for Democracy, Conflict, and Humanitarian Assistance, which all fits on a single business card, believe it or not. Uh, it's a big card, but it fits nonetheless. Uh, and one of my tasks during that year was to examine the relationship between uh, USAID and development o- activities writ large and the U.S. military in the field. As a part of that enterprise, I spent a month in the Horn of Africa in Djibouti, Ethiopia, and Kenya. And one of the places I went was a well-drilling operation conducted by U.S. Navy CBs in a little small uh, speck of a hamlet called Shidley, uh, just north of the equator near the Somalia border, about a couple hours away from the Somali border. And this U.S. Navy CB team had been digging two wells in Kenya for about four months, and it spent about 250000 U.S. tax dollars digging these two wells, the first of which didn't work, and the second of which, where I was visiting, had, been, had struck brackish water some 100 meters uh, still down, down below. And I asked the leader of the CB team, you know, how long are you guys going to be here doing this? And he said, well, we'll be here till we run out of steel. And even if they had been able to struck water to strike water, that water well would have only provided water for some 20 Somali nomadic families. The vast majority had far moved on after, long after they realized that the water drilling uh, project wasn't, um, wasn't very successful. So why would U.S. military assets, given the constraints of these assets in the, in the war on terror, be in northeastern Kenya digging two wells that, that don't work? If the focus is purely on humanitarian need, this would not, this particular project wouldn't seem to be a, a striking success. But it only makes sense if you argue that this humanitarian operation has some sort of strategic purpose. And in that particular part of the world, there are two that are important. The first is demonstrating American benevolence to a skeptical population, namely local Somalis, that in, in an area where Somali clansmen move back and forth across the border um, with, with impunity. And the second is to be to be sort of eyes on the ground there so you have a humanitarian purpose for actually Understanding better what's, what's happening in that particular area, which might be a hotbed for, for, uh, for violent extremism. These sorts of examples in permissive environments are happening all throughout Eastern Africa, where CTFO is operating, are happening increasingly throughout the Americas, have happened in Mindanao, the Philippines, and, and many other places. And while there are those in the civilian development community who would argue that that is um, not necessarily the best use of resources at best, or might even be philosophically opposed to it. Our position is that there may very well be a strategic motivation for doing this sort of work, what I would call instrumental as opposed to fundamental development assistance. We can think of fundamental development assistance as assistance where the improvement of the the civilian, improvement in the lives of the civilian population is an end in and of itself, that may have an ancillary benefit of promoting stability. Instrumental development assistance, I would argue, is assistance where helping the local population is a means to an end where the broader end is, in this case, advancing U.S. security interests in any, in any given area. The challenge with this is that even if you accept this distinction between fundamental and instrumental assistance as valid, and even if you believe that the United States has to find, the U.S. military in particular, has to find ways to do this sort of instrumental development assistance effectively, the problem is that there is no publicly available evidence to suggest that the military is actually able to link causally drilling drilling wells in in Shidli, or vaccinating goats in Djibouti, or building schools in Garissa, northeastern Kenya, is able to link causally any of those sorts of activities with the advancement of very specific strategic security objectives. And if you cannot demonstrate this link between doing the humanitarian activity and improving U.S. security, it then begs the question why is U.S. military involved in these sorts of activities which U.S. civilian agencies have been doing for decades. And the only reason for the U.S. military to be involved is if they bring some particular comparative advantage to these sorts of activities. There are all sorts of uh, comparative advantages that we think about with the military involved in humanitarian assistance, things like particular logistical lift or being able to bring doctors or other other, uh, specialists to bear in very short order. But I would submit to you the most important comparative advantage the military can bring to this space is a security mindset. By that, I mean this. Typically, when development agencies are engaged in, do, in doing humanitarian development assistance, the first question they ask is, what is the need? That is, what is the need of the local population? The first question the military tends to ask when they involved in this area is, what is the threat? That is to say, how does the existence of profound human need or the existence of instability that is fed by human need threaten U.S. security interests of the United States? There are some very small numbers of uh, of, of personnel at USAID that I'm sure Elizabeth will talk about that are focused in this particular realm, but the fact that the military, as an organization that is created to counter threats to the United States, is by design created to think about this, suggests that there may be a role. But I would submit to you, as I move on to recommendations, that that affirmative role for the military involvement in the development space can only occur if if five very specific uh, policy options are adopted. The first is that even if you assume that the military has a role to play in this space, we will not be able to sustain their activity or indeed sustain the, the importance of development assistance as a national security objective unless the American people have, unless, ha- unless there's a broader conversation with American voters about what it takes to make the United States safe. It is striking that twice within just a few months, the Secretary of Defense has made two major speeches articulating that we can, he in the Defense Department cannot keep America safe by itself if the only thing we have to rely on is kinetic military operations, then indeed in order to make America safe we have to be able to have a strong, vibrant uh, diplomatic capability and a strong, vibrant development capability. And both with regard to the Secretary of Defense's speeches and with regard to this broad organic thought development that I've described in the Department of Defense, the security establishment writ large, I would submit to you that all of those sorts of thinking are running far ahead of the pace of how the average American thinks about the things that make us safe. Most Americans that don't spend their time thinking about these sorts of things would tell you in a heartbeat that, of course, people like Major Shannon Beebe and those of others who are in uniform are the key to making America safe. That is, our military is what makes us safe. And, but if you ask them, how does development, what is, what is the role of development assistance, at best they would tell you, well, perhaps it's good, a good moral thing for the United States to do, and it's sort of good treble work, but they don't see the link necessarily between development assistance and building stability and therefore see the need of investing in this critical tool, this critical instrument, the instrument of development, not simply because it is a morally good thing to do, but indeed because it is in our strategic interest to do. And there has to be a conversation which moves, cl- moves the American people closer in that line to, in, in order to be able to be much more uh, assertive in it. The second thing that is important to do is to adopt a national development strategy. As we are all aware, uh, periodically the the White House produces a national security strategy, which is essentially a white paper which suggests the sorts of threats that the the White House sees to American interests, and broadly articulates how uh, the United States government will address those threats. Derivative of the national security strategy is a national military strategy produced by the Defense Department which says how military instruments will be used to support the vision of the national security strategy. Despite the fact that we are the single largest national donor, Of development assistance in the world we do not have a national development strategy which articulates how development assistance will advance the objectives laid out in the national security strategy and how development assistance as a matter of policy will help make america safer i would submit that we should have such a policy for two reasons both the actual document would be a very useful document to have for 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 the u.s government for our our host government our partner government allies and also for our recipient nations to understand how we view our development assistance and how we will prioritize the various types of assistance we will promulgate. But I would also suggest that as important as the actual product would be the process of developing a national development strategy, which is to say having the conversation inside government and having to work through all these sorts of tensions about what is the proper role of the military, what is the proper role of USAID, of the State Department, of other agencies that may have development arms and trying to figure out how you how you rationalize all these various activities will be a really important exercise to go through in the process of coming to a national and governmental consensus of the role of development assistance. The third thing that we have to do is provide support, material financial support for long-term and development, long-term and short-term development assistance, or as I like to ar- argue fundamental and instrumental development assistance, uh, respectively, and protect budgets for both. In short, it is important with regard to development assistance for the U.S. government to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time we have to be able to do the sorts of long-term poverty reduction which provides stability and which therefore supports the long-term uh, security objectives of the United States and we have to be able to do the shorter term instrumental humanitarian projects which if you can demonstrate their, their, their validity can help to advance very discrete security objectives and as a corollary to that We have to be able to develop, the fourth objective is we have to be able to develop a coherent methodology for measuring the strategic success of instrumental development assistance. In my other life, I'm a political science professor at George Mason University. So as a political scientist, I understand methodologically how difficult it is to prove causality. That is how difficult it is to prove that any sort of development project you're doing here is not only improving the lives of of local civilians, but that improving the lives of local civilians is improving U.S. national security. But if you cannot prove that, if you can't demonstrate it, then it's going to be difficult for Congress to be able to support this activity in the long run, and it's going to be difficult for the military and for the U.S. government to be able to know what sorts of activities are actually working in this space, and therefore which sorts of activities you should continue to support, and which ways in which you should shift, um, shift your efforts. And the final thing that I would submit to you is that it is critical to disperse U.S. development personnel throughout the government in ways that help support the importance of development assistance in our national security. It is often quoted that at the height of the Vietnam War, USAID had some 15,000 foreign service officers and has less than 1,000 today, or about 1,000 today, uh, which puts a great strain on the ability of USAID both to provide staff in the field to, to, to our various missions, but also to provide staff to other U.S. government agencies that are trying to think through how you do development assistance in this national security space. And that's true both in the National Security Council, it is true at various combatant staffs for all the regional combatant commands around the world, and it's also frankly true uh, at the at, at, at the where the rubber meets the road, where you're actually doing development and security activities in the field. Let me give you an example. A couple of years ago I heard um, a Marine Corps second lieutenant given a presentation. Uh, this particular Marine Corps lieutenant had fought in the Second Battle of Fallujah in November 2004. And he did a fantastic job articulating how they were able to cordon up the city, how they prosecuted their military operations, and how they were able to achieve success against the enemy. And one of the audience members asked him, so, lieutenants, is there anything else you wish you had? Anticipating that he would say, oh, well, I wish I had better air cover, I wish I had better, armor, better body armor. And he said, you know what I really wish I had? I really wish I had a Peace Corps on steroids, which is to say, that I really wish I had somebody there with me that could do these sorts of civilian assistance activities which needed to be done in this space but which as I, as a trained infantry officer, simply don't have the training to do. And this is true not simply in the context of combat in Iraq and Afghanistan, but is also true in permissive environments throughout Africa and Latin America. So one of the things that we call for is obviously the growth of the Professional uh, Development Corps in USCID, uh, the, uh, articula- the, the um, the dispatching of uh, equivalent numbers or important numbers of development personnel to important policy centers at the National Security Council. We are already sending senior development advisors to every combatant command. I think most of them have them now. There might be a couple that don't. Um, But I would also submit that it's important to have development advisors attached to every deployable Army combat brigade and every deployable Army uh, Marine Corps combat battalion um, in the world. And the reason is that more often than not we find um, U.S. Uh, soldiers and Marines that, as General Krulak articulated nearly a dec- over a decade ago, were involved in the three-block war. In the first block they have to do conventional combat operations, in the second block they're perhaps they're doing peacekeeping, in the third block they're providing essential humanitarian services. And assigning development officers that can uh, train with these, uh, with these soldiers and Marines while they're in, tr- in, in, a, in a training rotation here in the United States and can deploy with them and serve as a resource so that second lieutenant can actually has someone with him that understands how to do this sort of activity will be a really vital instrument going forward if we are to assume that there is a a strategic interest in doing development and doing it well particularly in the context of our national security so with that uh, that is the genesis for this report humanity is a weapon of war there are copies of it outside Uh, should you uh, have a chance to take a look at it i think we'll move on with our presentation from there so thank you very much
1: Uh, I'd now like, thank you, Ruben. Uh, I'd now like to turn things over to uh, Dr. Jim Shear. Um, as you know, um, Jim is uh, director of studies at the Institute for National Strategic Studies at National Defense University. Among his many prominent uh, positions and accomplishments, he served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Stability Defense. Uh, Defense. Excuse me. Defense. It's All the same these days. That's right. That's right. This is all. It's all integrated <laughs> government now. Uh, DASD for uh, stability operations and low intensity conflict during the Clinton administration.
3: Jim. Thank you very much, uh, Stuart, and thank you all for the opportunity to be here today. It's a, it's, it's a real pleasure and privilege also to see Rudy DeLeon, former uh, boss in the defense leadership in the late 90s, and to, uh, and to be part of this panel. Uh, let me start with uh, the usual disclaimer. I'm here speaking only for myself, uh, not for uh, the Department of Defense. I think the more interesting question is whether our current Secretary of Defense Robert Gates may have been speaking for our, Carl, our colleague Reuben a few nights ago when he gave that terrific uh, speech. Uh, Ruben, he, he could have lifted that text right out of your report. Uh, so I guess congratulations for that. Um, it, is a, uh, it is a very provocative, well-argued study, um, and I commend it to you. Um, I have a few quibbles here and there, but I agree with its basic thrust. Um, I do think uh, we are looking for ways to build more explicitly strategic rationales into our overall strategies for U.S. foreign assistance. Now how we do that coherently and whether that recalibration has to come at the expense of traditional development priorities are tough questions, and I'll be the first to acknowledge that. Uh, But I think it is very much in our national interest to have a debate on this, and I am glad that this report is out. It's uh, To use a military metaphor, it's an opening salvo in the larger debate that I think we'll be having over the next year or so. Um, The report does have a lot of valuable things to say about how the defense community looks at the whole issue of foreign assistance, let me boil my remarks down in the interest of time to basically three observations and then we'll uh, move on and I'll be happy to take questions along with my colleagues. Uh, first of all, let's, be, uh, let's beware, more than a little bit, beware of easy stereotypes when it comes to the Department of Defense. Uh, Ruben used the term sea change, uh, well, uh, in a sea change, tides rise and tides fall. Um, There are disagreements and cross-currents within this very large and diverse military community, our broadly speaking, our defense community. Not all military departments and services or the combatant commands view foreign assistance in the same way. Um, Yes, there is a growing realization that uh, state building and all that goes with it, from economic opportunity to public welfare and the rule of law, Uh, do have vital roles to play in our overall security stability posture especially looking back on the hard experiences of Iraq and Afghanistan over the last few years but that's uh, well short of saying that all of uh, our colleagues in the Defense Department are becoming dewy-eyed nation builders uh, or aspire to that uh, role Uh, it is true and I think Ruben fairly uh, points out uh, that uh, the view in the department uh, among various uh, communities more and more is that kinetic operations may be necessary but not a sufficient condition for overall victory as it would be defined in the sense of overcoming the causes that breed violent extremism and conflict. Observation number two, uh, it's always useful I think in this type of discussion to make it to keep a clear distinction between the instruments on the one hand and the environment on the other. Yes, there is much debate and consternation over whether the foreign assistance instrument is becoming militarized but if you talk to colleagues in the Department of Defense what they're really wrestling with, what they struggle with day-to-day is not that instrument, it's rather the environment, it's the civilianization of organized violence and warfare. Um, the days of high-intensity force-on-force engagements, for now, are really a thing of the past. I mean, we are more than 90 years beyond the Battle of the Somme in World War I, where England and France and Germany uh, ha- endured more than 1.5 million casualties uh, on the battlefield uh, in mass assaults across a contested zone of trenches. And we're also more than 30 years beyond the last real tank engagement in the Yom Kippur War of 1973. Um, Today's environment, today's conflict environment, is really dominated by irregular uh, warfare actors and tactics. Yes, there are new challenges emerging. Uh, We're concerned about the domains of cyberspace and outer space. Uh, there's the ever-present risk of uh, the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction that could trigger interstate conflict in the future. However, irregular warfare is here and now, and no matter whether we in the United States are bystanders um, or participants in that process, we ignore it uh, at our peril. Um, third observation, um, third and final observation, um, within the defense community where one stands on foreign assistance development assistance very much depends on where one sits tactically and operationally i'd quibble a little bit with rubin's point about dod embracing state building assistance outside of war zones yes there is a general attachment to the idea to the abstract concept of strategic shaping if you're Uh, sitting in Hawaii and you're the combatant commander of Pacific Command you're interested in engaging broadly across your area of responsibility Um, but the real driver of military provided foreign assistance is and has always been the fact of units in the field that need to engage the host community which sits just beyond the wire of their encampment and here I would argue that any U.S. commander at any level will have a huge stake in assuring that that assistance, which his or her unit is providing, passes muster from the development standpoint so that the wells wells being drilled won't deliver brackish water, uh, that the roads being put in won't run to nowhere, and that the schools and clinics being built today won't fall into disuse tomorrow because there are no teachers or doctors to put inside them. Um, anything uh, less than success will disappoint the expectations of the local community, and it will wear your welcome very thin. So I would say that there is a strong uh, need and encouragement, which is good news for the American taxpayer by and large, to to look at the the effectiveness of this assistance, um, which is provided, and to judge it just as we do other forms of assistance. Is it... Is not meeting its need? Is, uh, are we thinking through all the unanticipated consequences m- that might come from doing it poorly or wastefully? So those are my three basic observations. Uh, I don't want to overstep my time, Stuart, so uh, I do have some other ideas, but I'll wait for the general discussion. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much for those insightful comments, Jim. Um, my own basic argument um, is that the military's growing involvement in non-traditional security assistance including the ones that Rubin has described, need to be handled quite carefully um, given um, the potential to undercut broader U.S. foreign policy uh, development and long-term security objectives and also to complicate their potential to complicate the ability of the United States government to partner with non-governmental organizations in alleviating poverty and dealing with human insecurity uh, in conflict-prone countries. I think it's important, as Jim began to, to um, to unpack um, some of the the claims or um, or issues that are raised by Rubin's paper. Um, the overall question is: Under what circumstances should the U.S. military take the lead in developing, uh, excuse me, in delivering development, humanitarian, and related assistance? But I think in in that one question are at least three uh, other subsidiary questions, and the first is what should be the respective roles of civilian and military actors in full-scale counterinsurgency or stability operations, particularly in delivering transitional security, economic reconstruction, governance aid, and other interventions, and how should the balance of responsibility shift over time in those non-permissive environments? The second question, which actually is probably more relevant to much of what the U.S. government is doing or U.S. military is doing uh, in Africa, is when should the military get involved in delivering development and related assistance in relatively permissive environments where there's little active fighting going on. Now a number of strategists have suggested that this distinction doesn't really apply anymore since the U.S. government and the United States people faces a quote-unquote global insurgency. This means that we need to take COIN principles and apply them to permissive environments. My question is whether or not this is a wise direction for us to go in, and is DOD the right actor to be trying to win hearts and minds in the Horn of Africa, for instance? Does DOD have the situational awareness of local politics and tribal dynamics to do more harm than good, or do more good than harm, I should say? Is there any evidence that this aid is effective, even on DOD's more limited counterinsurgency terms? The third question is what are the implications of DOD-led humanitarian assistance for traditional humanitarian principles and actors? Presuming for the sake of argument that DOD humanitarian assistance actually does have strategic benefits, meets that strategic hurdle, as many claim, does that assistance outweigh the cost of undermining humanitarian principles of impartiality and neutrality and perhaps endangering humanitarian service providers? In what Presumably limited circumstances, then, should DOD be the humanitarian provider of choice. As you can tell, I'm, I'm somewhat skeptical of DOD's foray into activities that could, at least in principle, be undertaken by competent, well-resourced civilian actors, particularly in permissive environments. I think it's worthwhile taking a step back and asking, why, why this expansion of DOD's role? And overall, I just want to touch on some of, the, some of the sort of three main underlying dynamics that are helping to drive this. The first is the perceived security requirements of the global war on terrorism, particularly dangers posed by fragile and war-torn states. And not only has DOD embraced um, the SSTR uh, mission, or SSTR operations, that's uh, Security, Stabilization, Transition and Reconstruction operations, as core military military functions, but it's also increasingly occupied and preoccupied by addressing the roots of instability and extremism and bringing order to the world's quote-unquote ungoverned spaces. And this is a major theme of the 2006 QDR, which highlights the importance of the long war in building the capacities of friendly nations um, so that they can compete and defeat an agile adversary. And part of that, in DOD's perspective, requires getting rid of quote-unquote outmoded and constraining authorities on what it can do with its money. The second factor is the vacuum left by civilian agencies, notably State and USAID, which struggle to deploy adequate numbers of civilian personnel and to deliver assistance not only in insecure but also at at times in permissive environments. The difficulties that state USAID and other civilian agencies have encountered in securing fast dispersing contingency funds, building deployable civilian capabilities, and making a major impact in the field has led DOD to fill the gap, whether in training Iraqi police forces or delivering aid through quick dispersing commanders' funds. The third factor, which is related to the second, obviously, is chronic underinvestment by successive administrations in Congress in the um, the United States in non-military aspects of U.S. power. This has created an imbalance between military and civilian components of U.S. global engagement, including those related to state-building. So there's a massive mismatch between the authorities ostensibly lodged in the Secretary of State under the Foreign Assistance Act and the actual resources that are devoted to civilian agencies compared to the gargantuan budget of the Department of Defense, and these this massive asymmetry um, creates a, a constant gravitational pull uh, in which authorities and to, uh, are, are largely gravitate towards the Department of Defense over time. And I think it, there are two classic instances in which uh, in which this has been the case, uh, in which uh, which Congress because it's easier to get money for the Department of Defense has actually extended the authorities to the Department of Defense. One of them is what I mentioned earlier, these 1206 funds which allow DOD to use its own operations and maintenance funds to train and and equip uh, counterinsurgency and counterterrorist forces in partner countries. The other are so-called 1207, or now 1210, funds which allow, uh, which uh, are using uh, Defense Department funds that are shifted over to uh, projects identified by the State Department in USAID uh, for state building in in fragile and post-conflict state environments. Um, these are essentially workarounds to try to deal with uh, in, in an indirect way uh, this massive budgetary um, uh, asymmetry. My my central message is the U.S. is a crossroads in defining its national security policy, despite uh, the rhetoric about weak and failing states uh, in this administration, and and the 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 emphasis placed on transformational diplomacy, we have continued to underinvest in the nation's preventive foreign and development policy instruments. Um, There's a lot of complaints about uh, the weak performance uh, on the part of civilian agencies, but frankly you get what you pay for. it's unreal, unreasonable to assume strong performance from civilian agencies when they've not been given the, the, the staffing resources and management that are routinely enjoyed by the U.S. military, much less the foreign assistance tools they need to accomplish the mission we've set before them. Um, the Pentagon's expansion into non-traditional security assistance reflects um, the, the, the military's understandable effort to try to r- work around some deficient civilian capabilities, um, but it has some – potentially long-term worrisome um, uh, implications for the ability um, of the United States um, to create a coherent U.S. foreign policy, um, to create an image of the United States abroad in terms of delivering assistance that's not overly militarized, and and also the, the, to, to undercut the, the more sustainable long-term slog of trying to build effective institutions in the developing world. Um, so I have, an, I have a number of um, different... Uh, uh, recommendations, but I'll just uh, tell, sort of telegraph four of them in the interest of time. One of them, I think, is that we need to clarify agency roles and responsibilities in carrying out this agenda. Generally speaking, the justification for a lead DOD role in foreign aid varies with the permissive of the operating environment. In highly insecure settings, U.S. soldiers may be the only actors capable of providing urgent aid, but the rationale for DOD leadership is far less compelling in steady-state contexts where civilian agencies have a mandate and, at least in principle, the skills to be in the forefront. So we should resist um, expanding DOD uh, authorities in this regard. We also need to provide civilian agencies with the tool. This is the second point. Provide civilian agencies with the tools they need to do the job. Um, uh, Yesterday, um, Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice um, announced the launching of the Civilian uh, stabilization initiative, and that's a good start, and hopefully it will get um, full funding, um, not only for capabilities within the U.S. government, but also for creating a civilian reserve that can begin to, to perform some of these functions. Um, the, th- the third um, principle is to integrate State Department Development perspectives and expertise more robustly into DOD-led Counterterrorism and uh, post-conflict initiatives. There have been some early efforts to try to get a quote-unquote integrated, whole-of-government approach, uh, from provincial reconstruction teams to um, the Trans-Saharan Counterterrorism Partnership, et cetera. But frequently, there are not enough, DO, uh, excuse me, state or USAID staff providing their expertise in the management and design of those programs and, and their implementation. And then finally, um, I think we need to ensure that the activities of combatant commands are embedded in a larger U.S. government strategy. Um, as Ruben said, the Pentagon has uh, promoted the idea that combatant commands could be regional, useful regional platforms for quote-unquote phase zero activities or, or pre-conflict activities. And DOD is to be commended for trying to get to the uh, root causes of instability and, and violence in, and conflict in, in many countries around the world. Um, but I think uh, it still remains to be seen uh, whether or not um, there's going to be adequate civilian leadership under these initiatives, and in particular that uh, there's not going to be some collision with um, chief of mission uh, authority um, as, as these very large entities uh, get up and running, uh, questions of, of where U.S. policy will actually be coordinated and uh, some of the down, uh, downsides of actually having the appearance that U.S. foreign policy is being coordinated at combatant commands. So those are just some reflections on on this broader agenda. I'd now like to turn the floor over to Elizabeth. Um, As many of you know, Elizabeth Kvitashvili is Deputy Assistant Administrator of USAID in the Bureau of Democracy, Conflict, and Humanitarian Assistance. Um, Mm -hmm. She served as the founding director of the Office of Conflict Management and Mitigation Uh, At the agency, and spearheaded many of the interagency efforts we've been discussing. She also teaches as an adjunct professor at Johns Hopkins University SICE.
4: Georgetown, Georgetown switched. Oh,
1: she switched. She switched. Uh, Another premier institution of higher learning in the greater (laughs) metropolitan area. Uh, Elizabeth, over to you. Thank you.
4: Thank you, Stuart, Um, and thank you to Reuben and the center. the opportunity to comment on your truly excellent paper. Um, As with Jim, I do need to have a disclaimer, and that is uh, my comments are my own and do not represent those of the Agency of International Development. However, it is interesting to note that, um, Ruben, you were spot on when you wrote in your paper that USAID has demonstrated, in fact, a complex ambivalence about the engagement of our military colleagues in what we consider to be our turf, namely, in the provision of humanitarian assistance and development assistance. We, we are truly at odds within our agency as to whether we want to embrace the agency as good liberal tree-huggers or want to push them aside for taking over what we consider to be our, our primary domain. So on the one hand, we recognize the goodwill behind most of what is being proffered by our military colleagues, and we welcome it when requested, particularly the logistical support as was offered in the wake of the uh, Burmese cyclone, and in the past, whether it was the tsunami or in the Pakistan earthquake, or going back 10 years ago to the assistance provided by SOUTHCOM in the wake of Hurricane Mitch in Central America. The key here was that military assistance was requested by USAID, or in some cases by the host country, and it came as a valuable support to what the civilians were already offering. And I, and I underlined that word, it came in a supportive role. AID recognizes our shortcomings by way of insufficient human and program resources, as alluded to by my colleagues. Although I have to say, sometimes it's not about more money. It's about better programming, about more local buy-in and absorptive capacity on the part of local local institutions. Former Afghan Minister of Finance, Ashraf Ghani, has recently written that it really is not necessarily about more resources. It's about the reformation of the institutional architecture by which we program our resources that really needs reform. So I caution us when we think about the military, again, offering up much of its resources. In many cases, we're going to overwhelm a country with too much resources that they can't program effectively, and in some cases, too much money badly programmed will be worse than not enough money in the first place. So we at AID do agonize over the militarization of assistance, and the debate over the role of AFRICOM reflects the civilian, both state and AID, concerns on this matter. We welcome General Ward and Admiral Stavridi's efforts with their staff to build the capacity of whether it's the African or the Latin American militaries to do a better job of what the military are supposed to do in their respective sphere. We welcome the assistance that they're providing to help beef up the militaries to do a better job particularly on the security end of the uh, equation. But I worry when I think about the precedent that our own military is setting with our African colleagues and our Latin American colleagues, are we setting an example whereby we're going to encourage these militaries, when ready and able, to begin engaging in their own forms of development assistance within their own countries? As an example, do we really want the Guatemalan uh, military, which has a history of positive and negative engagement in the governance of that country? really involving itself in civilian affairs once again. I have no answer for that. I simply posit that as a question. Do we want um, African or Latin American or any um, um, local military engaging itself in more civilian-like activities when in fact militaries have been part of the governance problem in some of these countries in the recent past? Now I agree with your assessment, Ruben, that we at USAID believe that DOD's programs don't constitute real development. They are primarily, in our perspective, feel-good, short-term, one-off in nature. They raise hopes and expectations, but they're unable to address root causes, as my colleague said. In the case of Afghanistan, where I spent the early part of uh, 2000 and 2003 opening the aid mission, uh, and I was essentially an aid mission of one for a good part of that time, Um, I worked very closely with my uh, military colleagues on the ground who were, in effect, serving as AID officers in many parts of the country where I, as a single-aid officer, couldn't get. They were doing a lot of very good short-term one-off projects. But unfortunately, the schools they were building, the health clinics they were rehabilitating were not tied to the longer-term, deeper institutional fix that links the construction or rehabilitation of these facilities to a ministry that will ensure that the facility is regularly supplied and comes with trained and salaried staff. Too often this is not the case and USAID or the community are left with a well-intentioned project that is the short-term fix but with no sustainable lash-up to a central project or longer-term support. In many places our military colleagues have yet to learn the basic development premise that teaching the locals to fish is more valuable than giving them the fish to eat. Then there is the issue of who you are and why you choose to do what you do. When communities get asked the same questions in assessments or surveys by men with uniforms and guns and by humanitarian aid workers, whether they're aid workers, USAID, or NGOs, do you think that local people wonder if we, the aid workers, are also collecting intelligence? people do become confused and equate the military and humanitarian actors as one in the same, thereby reducing the humanitarian space that NGOs so crave and complain has disappeared. In the past, while this was undesirable, it wasn't necessarily life-threatening. Today, it is life-threatening. Now I want to argue with one of Rubin's central premises. Ruben posits nicely that we need to acknowledge the relevance of global development to our national security. I completely agree with you on this point, Ruben. However, you also indicate that since what AID does is long-term development and that we do not program against national security objectives, the DOD should do that. DOD should take a more prominent role in the provision of development assistance and humanitarian assistance for national security purposes but they should do so as a supporting actor, not as a lead actor. There is a role for DOD to play in supporting what you term sustainable security, but I would posit that USAID and other civilian agencies and the interagencies should be the ones to do it through the staff and resource engagement uh, augmentation that you also argue is critical, but it should not be our military colleagues leading it. Now, in the case of USAID in the past five years, we have taken our development resources, the short-term assistance that's provided from OFTA or from OTI, as well as our longer-term assistance, and we have begun to program it much more um, closely with our colleagues, both in the State Department's uh, uh, counterterrorism office, as well as our colleagues in the, in the military, whether it's the Special Operations Command or the Combat Commands. We have a number of excellent examples where Aid assistance is being used for national security purposes, the Trans-Saharan Counterterrorism Program in the Sahel, uh, new programs of assistance that are being looked at around the Horn of Africa through an East Africa Regional Security Initiative, the assistance that AID is giving in Mindanao, and in many other countries. This development assistance, looking at root causes of why people either choose to follow extremist thinking or choose to participate in what we might term as irregular warfare or terrorism or insurgency. We are looking at root causes of why people have chosen this path. We are attempting to address the very issues such as corruption, bad governance, lack of jobs, lack of education, among others, in which many of these people have chosen to follow a negative path because their government is not able to provide or is unwilling to provide those sorts of social service and good governance that uh, that they should be doing. So AID has transformed how it's thinking about development assistance. We are putting much more of our intellectual capacity in analyzing how we need to devote our time and attention to using these resources towards uh, what um, Jim calls irregular warfare, although that term is still very... uh, very uh, undefined for AID, and we're still very uncomfortable with the use of that term. But nevertheless, in fact, AID has undergone a significant transformation and is participating much more heavily in what we call national security-related themes. And I'll point to a couple of other examples. The um, counterinsurgency strategy that was released a couple of years ago, uh, by uh, Fort Leavenworth uh, under the general command of uh, General Petraeus did have significant AID input. We were there helping with the writers and they, in fact, took much of the material that aid gave, gave them to help convince the skeptical audience that, in fact, it should be soft power that leads in a counterinsurgency and not the kinetics. Uh, in addition, we are um, hopefully getting ready to launch with an AID a new policy paper that articulates more firmly what AID's role should be in counterinsurgency and counterterrorism. We are heavily engaged in an interagency initiative uh, called the uh, Consortium for Complex Operations, again, trying to represent the 3D equation, the development, diplomacy, and defense part of the equation. My point is that aid has risen to the task. We are under-resourced, people-wise, and... Uh, program-wise, but we are making a strategic shift to become more relevant actors in the National Security Theater, we would argue that we need to be supported by our military colleagues more. Thank you. Thank
1: you. Thank you very much, Elizabeth. Um, I want to uh, give perhaps um, uh, Ruben a chance to respond to some of these things, but I think that um, I'm hoping maybe you, you can do it in um, as part of your answer to some of the questions that are... Sir,
2: let's go straight to the audience. Yeah,
1: okay. yeah. uh, if, I, if I could uh, uh, take... Uh, I'll take a couple questions at a time, please. Um, this gentleman right here. Uh, please, And also, please identify yourself and your affiliation.
5: John Keaton. Thank nice you for... Nice to my, see you, John. Uh, good to see you. I want to talk to you. Uh, I was delighted to hear you mention Peace Corps. I have a long-term Peace Corps background and quite a few years in Afghanistan. I remember a president who told us to bear any price, bear any burden. You had a brilliant discussion today. And in this town, every single week, you can go to a talk on the failures of Afghanistan, the problems of Afghanistan, the reading the books coming out on Afghanistan. You spoke about the macro issues. Where do we get to the micro-issue of security for the individual AID NGO officers? I recently heard an AID director from Afghanistan say he had never been out of the compound except in an ambassadorial convoy. Last night, I had dinner with a senior World Bank official who said that when they now go to Kabul, they cannot leave the compound. How do civilians thus work in these contexts? Have we, by default, because of our fear of the local people, given the responsibility to the military, we must remember that sacrifices are going to be required if we're going to serve these countries in their civilian capacity?
1: Thanks, John. Let's take another question. Uh, This uh, uh, young lady down here.
6: Hi, Emily Burrows with Catholic Relief Services. Um, Thank you very much for mentioning the discussion or the need for developing a causal link between the military civil affairs activities, particularly in the Horn of Africa, with the strategic objectives. I wonder if there's any efforts to actually underway to look at that causal link. Um, There's a lot of need for it, but I don't know if anything's been done to date or there are plans to do that. Also I wanted to mention in West Africa, particularly in the, tr- the countries covered by the Trans-Saharan Counterterrorism Partnership, we've seen numerous funding opportunities where we are requested to target beneficiaries based on their vulnerability to ex- influence by extremist ideologies, not necessarily an objective assessment of need. We've also seen education activities and media outreach activities that are meant to achieve the results of decreasing influence, again, to extremist ideologies. I wonder what the implications are of that, not only for the safety and security of NGOs and the beneficiaries we work with, but perhaps greater implications for, do, do these kinds of activities actually perhaps undermine um, the security we're trying to achieve?
1: Thanks. Thank you very much. Um, uh, Elizabeth, do you want to uh, lead with that, and if uh, Ruben has some comments or Jim.
4: Um, Thank you to both of you on those questions. Uh, John, things have changed since we were there. Um, I was out of the compound all the time, as you know. Um, I don't think I have a good answer for you on that. Um, One of the challenges for AID uh, and its officers is to obviously spend more time in the field away from their desks, away from the email back to Washington getting a deeper appreciation for the problems of the country, for the goals and aspirations of our counterparts, the beneficiaries, Um, but obviously not putting ourselves or our um, drivers or our beneficiaries at risk. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say that it's about more security for us. I would say it is, and this is a long-term issue. It is about regaining a measure of legitimacy in our part of, of, uh, of what it is we're there to do. Um, it is about giving back and listening more to our local counterparts and being less directive to them. Um, it is about having a new generation of AID officers who are, to use the abuse term, more expeditionary Um, Expeditionary doesn't necessarily mean putting yourself more at risk, but be willing to be a little bit more aggressive about crossing that wire. Um, And I think we're getting a new generation of AID officers that are willing to do that. The challenge for us is obviously uh, working with our security officials in the embassy to, and they are obviously concerned that we not put ourselves at risk because it comes back to haunt them. Um, but I think we have to change the paradigm for how we do development assistance, and it does mean pushing ourselves in a more aggressive way to get out and be there and be seen and be more visible, even if it comes at increased risk to ourselves. Um, not everybody's willing to do that, I'll just leave it at that. Now, your um, question um, is relevant to John's question, because obviously if AID and its partners are seen as um, linked to, whether you want to call it intelligence operations or military operations or kinetic operations, we do put ourselves more at risk. What I would challenge you to think about, however, is what is it we're attempting to do when we think about addressing the root causes of extremism? We are attempting to address in many cases fundamental development problems in which people do not have good alternatives and now are choosing bad alternatives because that is what is available to them. So when we talk about trying to address the root causes of extremism or radicalism or why somebody chooses to lash up with a group that is espousing violence in that host country What we're attempting to do through our NGO or institutional contractor partners is try to find alternatives for those people so they can choose themselves, nonviolent versus violent alternatives. And it means putting in place institutional architecture, whether it's an institutional framework for the health um, uh, ministry or the education ministry or jobs or livelihoods, it's many of the same developmental Problems that were being challenged in, in, in the third world, what has changed is the goal and objective. And it gets back to Ruben's point. We're not necessarily doing development for development's sake. We're doing development activities for a broader national security, whether you want to call it counterterrorism or counterinsurgency rubric, because the short-term objective is to provide that alternative to that individual or that community stabilize that region, or that community, or that country, and then bring them back to the path of the longer-term development, and I'll leave it at
2: that. Ruben, did you have any comments? Sure. The only thing I'll say on on the causal link portion is, um, as I mentioned in my report, there there is no publicly available evidence to suggest that the military has a way of linking um, specific development activities with strategic objectives. I know that that thinking is, is ongoing. There are aspects of the Defense Department and the combatant commands and others that are think, that are thinking about it hard. But I, I would simply say that I, it's a hard problem. They know it's a really hard problem. The last thing I would say on that point um, is, uh, and I don't think I'm speaking out of turn to say this: as I mentioned, I was I just came from Nairobi, um, where Tuesday there was a conference hosted by CJTF HOA with a number of NGOs present. To talk about various issues in the Horn, and the the one of the central questions of the NGOs was precisely this: How do you know that goat vaccination helps you to you know achieve strategic objectives? And um, there was not a satisfactory answer to that point.
4: If I could add a sure. That being said, what we have um, uh, done over the last couple of years, and we are, now this is the interagency, we have reached agreement on um, a common framework for assessing. All these bad trends, whether it's conflict or insurgency or or, uh, extremism or radicalism, all these bad trends, fragility, we now have a common framework, the conflict assessment framework that's now being also termed the interagency conflict assessment framework, that allows us to jointly assess root causes for what the problems are in a village, in a region, in a country, in a uh, or in a broad Trans-Sahelian or East Africa region, so that we come to a common agreement as what the root problems are in the various geographic strata of the, of the area that we're looking at, and then, hopefully, bring our uh, respective resources to air where the military defines its, its, its parameters of what it's going to do to address this, this common problem, State Department and AID. It's very much a work in progress. We have the framework. We're jointly programming. I will tell you as an AID officer, we don't yet have it lashed up enough so that we we know enough about how we're individually programming. That's just a work in progress.
1: This gentleman here and then um, uh, the woman in the back with the um, sort of pink blouse.
7: (laughs) Uh, Chuck Woolery, uh, former chair of the United Nations Association Council of Organizations. Uh, I just want to thank the center for this uh, uh, program. It's really been very, very helpful. I, I thought I was first pushing national security issues and development 10 years ago. And uh, this 4th of July, I heard uh, Senator Harry Truman's speech on the 4th of July, 1947, talking about the U.S. signing the, uh, of the UN Charter, calling it the Declaration of Interdependence. And if you can imagine the horrors after World War II, that the idea of the UN and, and development assistance and really meeting the essence of security was common knowledge back then and it's nice to see it finally coming back around again. Two quick questions. Uh, There is one bill, uh, House Res 1078, I believe, that calls for a new global Marshall Plan. Uh, It has very few co-sponsors, needs much more attention. It's doing it in the context of national security. It's asking for a new source of funding, which I'd like you to speak to in terms of, we don't have the funds in our current budget to do anything that you're talking about. Uh, So where are we gonna get new money for it? and another bill calling for a new department of development we have a department of defense we have a department of state for diplomacy we have no department of development and i uh, just wanted to get your opinions your views on on those i'll, I'll uh, start oh, i'm
2: sorry you know question of
7: course
8: yes. thank you nicole Millade, american red cross um, i was hoping ruben could expand briefly on elizabeth's previous comment and if it's true, as Elizabeth has said, that um, USAID is increasingly aligning its objectives with um, U.S. national security objectives, is there such a thing as fundamental development assistance that is assistance um, strictly for as an end to, as a means to um, a development end? Thank you, sure.
2: Ruben. Did you want to? sir sure, sir sure, sure. Um with regard to uh, the Department of Development, the Center for American Progress is on the record for supporting the creation of a Department of Development. Uh, we we think that it is an essential component to have in order to ensure that development is taking uh, as 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 uh, given its due importance in the councils of government, and also to ensure that we do development in, uh, in, in an effective manner and ha- and acquire its resources to do so accordingly. Uh, we, so we were involved in a number of other initiatives to help make that happen. I'm happy to talk to you about it more um, offline. I can't speak with, with, uh, with much authority, I, I regret to say, on, on House Res uh, 1078, but I'd be happy to talk to you a little bit more, more about it afterwards. On the question, um, given Elizabeth, Elizabeth's comments, is there such a thing as fundamental development? Yes. The question is who's doing it, right? So um, one might argue, for example, that UNDP is interested solely in fundamental development. One might argue certainly that NGOs such as Oxfam and others are interested solely in, in fundamental development. Um, one of the interesting aspects, and obviously I, I, I hope Elizabeth can comment more about this, I mean, USAID, from its inception was never solely about fundamental development assistance what was created in 1961, as we all know, was all created essentially to development assistance, mainly as a way of countering communism around the world. Um, I would submit to you that the, the sort of increase of importance on fundamental as opposed to instrumental development assistance for USAID, please started to happen um, you know, after Vietnam, certainly towards the end of the Cold War. Uh, so to some extent, I, I think that you know, the, cons- the consideration amongst many NGOs about, about USAID having a much more instrumental approach misses its history, really, um, and it, it is, has always been uh, an instrument of, of U.S. government and therefore always been an instrument, whether or not it's been recognized as such, explicitly recognized as such, as an instrument of U.S. foreign policy. Now, the question is, I, but the, the, the challenge is that we have an interest as a government in promoting both fundamental and instrumental assistance. The question, as, which, is, which is where the rubber meets the road, is how do you do both how do you pr- how do you protect both of those missions through funding and through and through uh, through through programs, and how do you do them in a way that um, that is both uh, important for us but also critically that that, that the beneficiaries? That's how I particularly. Did you want to say uh, anything, Elizabeth, or we can open um, it up again?
4: Um, let me just add a little bit to what Ruben said. Um, wearing now my um, hat as, as a former director of the Office of Conflict Management Mitigation, um, we undertook a number of studies, uh, basically drawing from information that was available um, to the public from people like Paul Collier and others. And it was fairly apparent that if you look at the countries in which AID is currently operating or has programming, more than two-thirds of those countries are in some form of unstable state. Either they're deteriorating, a la Zimbabwe, and um, uh, are moving towards state failure, or they are a failed state, like a Somalia, or they're coming out of a crisis, let's say, like a Kosovo. But they're not yet necessarily um, out of the crisis or firmly um, 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 in a post-conflict stable state more than two-thirds of the countries and yet AID was still programming as it always does and what I would posit to you is we're still going to address the root causes of of underdevelopment. but we need to ensure that a country is stable first before we can help it launch whether you want to call it a five-year plan or a ten-year development plan because until that country is relatively stable and I won't define what stability is but until that government has the capacity to take on a longer-term development mission. We are not going to be able to help give that government the ability to do what it needs to do. So first and foremost, AID, with its development assistance, is going to address those root causes in order to help stabilize the programs. That's why we have so many more short-term programs. And then we'll begin to do the more traditional development programs. Now look around the world. Most of our programs in Latin America, they're pretty much development programs with development goals and objectives. But increasingly, whether it's in the Horn of Africa or in places like Bangladesh or Mindanao, but not necessarily the Philippines, or Kenya or uh, Somalia, it is about stability, using development as one of the tools to help bring stability to that country.
1: More questions? Anybody? Uh, yeah, Spencer. Spencer.
9: I'm uh, Lieutenant Commander Spencer Abbott, I'm a naval officer, and as somebody who's known Reuben for a long time, I want to commend you on what uh, is a very forward-looking study, I think, and uh, on your long commitment and uh, experience across the military and civilian spectrum in uh, committing to improving the methods by which we deal with these important issues. And my question is really in two parts to Reuben and anyone else that wants to address it is organization and education, largely on the military side, but how we integrate as, as a military with our counterparts and cognizant civilian agencies in this sphere. Um, the landmark legislation that organizes the Defense Department with respect to how we uh, plan our operations and execute them and educate our officers is Goldwater-Nichols, which was a Cold War-era legislation in the 80s which sought to address Problems of the Vietnam era, largely, and uh, other problems over time, in that we could not effectively work together as military services in exe- planning and executing military operations. So it created locus points for planning in joint staffs, the combatant commands that served as points for everyone to come together and plan for contingencies, and then work together to uh, solve those contingencies in real time. And so. Your anecdote in Kenya, which I think is very telling, which you begin the report with, seems to me to be a problem of, above all else, planning. No locus for planning. And Stuart, I thought, used a very good term, which is near and dear to my heart as a pilot, which is situational awareness. We use that all the time in the aviation community. There was no way those CBs could have had the situational awareness, I would argue, to effectively uh, support the USAID objectives because they didn't have the opportunity to to meet and consult with that expertise. And they couldn't be expected to have that expertise on their own. They're not educated for that. They don't have that experience. And uh, in terms of organization, I agree very much that Admiral Stavridis is a a visionary guy who is doing something that needs to be done, but which really he's filling an ad hoc gap which needs to be addressed more broadly, which is we need a place for all these agencies to come together and to be able to plan. And the failure, we, so Goldwater-Nichols, I think, has addressed this problem of the military services not being able to warfight together effectively. Magnificent warfighting in Iraq and then a complete failure in post-war planning because who who was equipped and had the situational awareness to do that? There was no real locus for that. Even the State Department, which made an effort to plan, couldn't really have been expected to have that situational awareness because of the lack of integration of other cognizant actors in in executing that planning. And so my question is, one, kind of dealing with this Department of Development, does it make sense to, now that we are getting an idea, Okay, the nature of the system has changed, as you mentioned, Ruben, September 11th confirmed the change that we've been seeing since the end of the Cold War, and now that Secretary Gates has said, we are going to put these other missions on par with kinetic operations, the counterinsurgency realm, the stabilization, post-conflict stabilization, Uh, Does it make sense to say, okay, now how do we reorganize as a Defense Department, and should we now reorganize in consonance with the uh, thoughts of uh, uh, the organization of USAID and and other cognizant uh, agencies? And my one last point is that Goldwater-Nichols also fundamentally impacted the education of military officers to fight together as military services, because, A, it legislated education requirements, it also legislated requirements about what what jobs are going to be advantageous to the careers of officers. So going to the joint staff at the Pentagon is a sought after job because of that legislation forcing that on the military. It wasn't something the military uh, chose for itself. Is it time to, to take a look at the fact that foreign area officers who have some of the, the most uh, useful knowledge in this area are essentially uh, limited at the 06, the captain or colonel level, um, if these are equal missions, should we give them equal opportunity or to rise to positions of authority or at the very least equip other officers with some of those skill sets that they are currently afford, language, uh, graduate education, et cetera. And my last point is uh, to illustrate this, PRT teams, which I think have been very effective. However, I know a number of the individuals that have gone and done that and they've they've served very ably and bravely, I think. However, many of them had never met a USAID official or officials from any of the agencies that they were going to be working with before arriving on the ground in Afghanistan to uh, begin very, very important and dangerous and critical work for our country. So, thanks very much.
1: Thanks. I think that there there's so many uh, questions embedded in that, we'll probably just go right to the panel right now. Um, um, let's start with Ruben, and then um, I know Jim has some thoughts here, and then perhaps uh, Sure. Well, first of all, again,
2: as someone who's known Spencer since uh, before I could drink, uh, I'm uh, I, uh, uh, glad you're here and very grateful for your service to tour combat veteran in both Afghanistan and Iraq. So thank you very much for your, for your service to the country. Uh, there's a lot to your question. I, I think that, f- first of all, I'll sort of start with the organizational question. I don't think the organizational problem is, was, is in DODs. Side per se, they may disagree, but I think that I mean the, the real challenge, frankly, is with the organizational uh, capacities of of USAID. But mean, I can't tell you just from my my one year at USAID, the number of times there were requests from all sides of DOD to have a, a USAID officer come to a planning conference at Norfolk or at Hawaii or whatever. And if you did that, you would exhaust the entire core of USAID development officers around the world. They just they just, they just can't they can't uh, they can't meet that demand now. To take it from that sort of micro point and go macro, right? The reason that is true is, as Stuart mentioned, we've been under-investing in uh, their development arm for many, many years. The reason we've been under, uh, under-investing in it, in part, is because we haven't had a national consensus that this is a core mission of our government that is vital to our security. So in order to have a viable civilian partner, you first have to have, I would argue, um, a feeling amongst the general population, this is something that is worth spending taxpayers' resources on so that congressmen and senators would feel comfortable politically to be able to create the sorts of structures you need on, and, the, and the funding of those structures you need on the civilian side so that you can be, you know, viable partners so that the first time, you know, a, a lieutenant commander or a major who's on PRT duty meeting a USAID officer is not when they're showing up on the ground but perhaps, you know, back in garrison because they've had people that have been working with them for years. Um, There there are moves afoot uh, around town to create a civilian equivalent of Goldwater-Nichols. I know perhaps Elizabeth could talk a bit bit more about that. I would simply, and there are multiple ways of doing it, I would simply say that I I think it is absolutely clear that we have to have a civilian um, planning framework and educational framework and bureaucratic incentive framework to grow the sorts of officers, civilian officers, that are necessary to do this sort of work, both far forward and also to serve with other agencies, uh, if you're a USAID officer, to go to the NSC, to go to the Pentagon, to go to the State Department, um, so that we can have this
3: expertise build out over time.
1: Thank you. Um, Jim. Um,
3: just a few quick uh, comments by way of response. The, the education and, and training uh, issues are, are very important, and they are struggling generally to catch up with reality here. Uh, there are some good, promising initiatives everything by way of pre-deployment training and familiarization with civilians and military right now in Fort Bragg prior to going out to PRTs, for example. But you also hit hit on a very important issue, promotional incentives have to be there and I would say that's true for FAOs, for foreign area officers and the U.S. Army as well as it is for uh, civilian staff who go out to PRTs and need to come back. That's very much part of the State Department agenda situational awareness, which you pointed out. Goldwater Nichols, I think the spirit of the thing, setting aside the organization, is really that planners from all perspectives ought to be downrange looking at a problem. The policy prescription I take from all this about well drilling in Shidley, Northern Kenya or wherever, is not that DOD should slow down, but that AID should speed up. Uh and that wherever there are military officers, commanders at any level with money to spend, Um, on civic assistance, disaster relief, or something broader, they need the civilian expertise there to make the right judgments. For short, one of, I I take Elizabeth's point, one of type operations, uh, events, assistance, which can, however, be handed off and sustained. Part of the problem is, to get to the, the, the metrics issue, A lot of this goes to building personal relationships with the local town elders, with the local community. The problem we have is the rotation base for some of these longer-term things takes people out of the mix after a year. That is a huge problem. If you want to keep the relationships, you have to work hard on uh, sustaining them. Finally, just a a quick editorial comment on this issue of humanitarian space that uh, some of us have I pondered here. I feel very personally about that because in an earlier lifetime, I worked for the United Nations, and I would cross uh, conflict zones into contested areas in Cambodia and and former Yugoslavia, and I did it in a white car, standing out like a sore thumb. Quite frankly, if the environment is not permissive enough to allow the standout option, as a civilian, you only have two other options: you can blend in, or you can armor up. And both of those have distinct liabilities and drawbacks. But those are the only three options, fundamentally. In these non-permissive environments, I would concede that humanitarian space is shrinking. But I would also point out that guilt by association with the U.S. military is only part of the problem. There are other problems. NGOs um, are affected very much by advocacy and human rights imperatives. And there is, you know, if if NGOs are pointing fingers one way or the other, that affects the security of their people in the field. A lot depends on whether there's an established government in Kabul or Baghdad whose writ is being extended to the provinces. Whether you like it or not as an NGO, you are looked upon as helping to extend the writ of that government. You are, therefore, a partisan whether or not you like it. Finally, I'd add the quality of assistance, beyond simply life-saving humanitarian relief, can be politicizing. If you're building a school for girls in southern Afghanistan, I would submit that as a politicizing act which is going to draw opposition from some extremist quarters, and that has to do with the quality of the assistance, not just the issue of, are you doing it next to a guy carrying a gun? So all those factors have to be weighed and considered. I have time
1: for one more question, and then um, if there is one. Yes, uh, this gentleman over here.
8: Oh, I'm sorry. Don Her from the Center for uh, International Policy. I, I'm trying to step back here uh, and, and take a larger perspective, and, and I think what I'm hearing and what I've been thinking for a while myself is that uh, we're not – going to get a good handle on this problem if the military keeps going the way it is now. We've just, we're too engaged. We need more civilian engagement and part of this is the budget. There's no way state can keep up when the military has got all of these assets uh, worldwide that are continuing to grow and while Gates says that uh, well militarization is a problem but we still need to spend more on defense that's not solving the problem. And I'd just be interested in your comments on yeah, that.
1: Yeah, let me let me uh, try to take that on. I think that uh, you know you're right that there's a there's a huge um, uh, asymmetry right now, and uh, there are a lot of uh, uh, electoral and other imperatives uh, and uh, incentives that uh, for keeping it that way. On the other hand, I think that um, there are some promising signs. Um, that I think point in the other direction, um, that I think a recognition that things have gotten too far out of balance. Um, the administration's budget, now it's very difficult in an election year, obviously. The administration's budget um, begins to correct uh, some of uh, some of this, this problem in terms of the number of Foreign Service officers, um, both at USAID and in the State Department, uh, that are being requested. And my strong expectation is that if Barack Obama is president, um, but also uh, if uh, John McCain is president, there will be some... Um, uh... continued uh... movement uh... in this direction certainly on capitol hill um, there's tr- i've never seen this much interest um, uh... certainly for the last uh... decade and a half uh... perhaps beyond that in terms of the amount of uh... of effort uh... uh members of relevant committees are putting into holding hearings and uh... and considering proposals uh... for uh ramping up uh, development and the civilian side of uh, the interagency um, whether or not that uh, is going to translate into a cabinet level development department obviously remains to be seen but but I think that that and uh, uh, and the, I mean it will be a tough budgetary environment it's always hard to take away or begin to shrink um, um, uh, shrink budgets once they've gotten quite gargantuan or to, or to ship transfer resources from the DoD budget for instance to the state one but Anyway, those are my reflections. I don't know if others have some ideas on that. And also, if you have a uh, – I'd also invite at this point, since we have to close, uh, Ruben or uh, my other two panels to make any uh, closing remarks they'd like to. Uh,
4: from within AID's um, perspective, it's very much a work in progress. I mean, we're, we're, we're trying to grow. We're trying to be there where we need to be. We've already said as a panel we don't have enough human resources, although uh henrietta four and the administration i think are going to be able to be successful in getting us more people but as i mentioned earlier their junior officers are going to need to grow and in the meantime we have a need to fill the slots that ruben was talking with more senior experienced officers today uh so it's going to mean we're going to have to make choices uh strategic choices as to where we put our people where we put our resources and that is part of the dilemma because we need to be everywhere for all the problems but we just don't have the capacity.
2: I would simply say that um, I I hope that this is an effort to help the debate catch up to the practice on where things are on the ground. And uh, thank you all very much for coming.
1: Thank you. Uh, Please join me in uh, thanking Ruben.